everyone, before we kick off, quick disclosure, I have a small financial stake in Alliance Dow, but no direct control over its operations, nor its management. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, guys, uh, really excited for this one. Today, we have a bit of breaking news on the show. Uh, we're joined by Imran Khan and Chow Wang, founders of DeFi Alliance. Uh, for those who don't know, today, DeFi Alliance is one of the leading, actually probably the leading uh, Web3 startup accelerator. Uh, they've accelerated more than 90 startups, including 15% of the top 100 DeFi projects by market cap. Uh if you if you guys don't know their portfolio, it's I mean it's zero X, DYDX, Kyber, Olympus DAO, Paraswap, Ribbon, Sushi Swap, Zerion, I could keep going, um, and many others. Uh Chow and Imran are at the forefront of crypto. I, I always love talking to them. It feels like I you know, I kinda get this inside scoop, uh, you know, kind of a look into the crystal ball of what will happen like two or three years from now, just because of their place in the industry. So I mean today uh we are going to cover uh, everything from just their views on the market, their views on the industry, what's happening in DeFi, uh, the emerging integration of like Web 2 and Web 3, gaming, L1s, a whole bunch of other things. But before we do that, uh, guys, a big congratulations is in order. Today, you announced Alliance DAO, a $50 million venture fund structured as a DAO to invest in and build Web 3 companies of the future. Congrats, Gus. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Of course. Really exciting. Um, oh, by the way, folks who, uh, who are used to Santiago on the show, Santiago, unfortunately, got a little bit sick right now. So we are joined by my co-host and co-founder, uh, Mr. Mike Ippolitos. Yeah, and Chow and Emma and I apologize. The real tragedy of this podcast is that you have to make do with me instead of Santiago, <laughs> who is sick for the time being. But uh, so thanks, guys, for being good sports. Um, I love all of you. We are going to get into Alliance Dow, who invested, what you're investing in, what this is why you structured as a DAO at the end of the podcast. I think right now um, we are going to, I think the best place to start would just be a framework and how you guys are viewing the markets going into 2022. Uh, like, like I said before, I mean, I think just because of your spot as an accelerator uh, and some of the earliest investors in the industry, you get this really unique view into the future. So Chow, I think I'd start with you. What, what are you most excited about going into 2022? Um, the, uh, the biggest thing I'm excited about is all the talent that's flowing into crypto from, uh, uh, web two, um, Silicon Valley, as well as, you know, wall street, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm, I'm feeling extremely overwhelmed by the quality of applicants to our accelerator. Um, this week I'm basically like, you know, back to back interviews with, uh, with founders and the caliber of founders is so high that, we probably have to reject maybe like half of like YC alumni uh, who applied, um, you know, half of like Ivy Leagues, you know, people with uh, previous successful exits. Um, I I'm just really excited about this. That that's by far the number one thing. Um, so I guess my question to you is like, you know, like Jason said, you guys see probably more de deal flow specifically in the de DeFi space than maybe any other fund, accelerator, whatever, uh, in all of crypto. I'd be curious to get a sense of how you're just thinking about DeFi. Like, what's the current state of the market? So actually, uh, on this note, there, I have something very interesting to say is that uh, the vast majority of our applicants and um, founders that, are, that will be admitted to the next cohort will actually not be DeFi. Uh, last cohort was vast majority was actually gaming. The next cohort is going to be a very 
balanced mix of DeFi, gaming, Web3 social nets, NFTs, basically everything, every sector that you can think of. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, when we, I'm getting a flashback, when we initially launched Permissionless, our event, we we're like, this is going to be the number one DeFi event. And then we actually went through this, ooh, well, actually, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in NFTs. And ooh, actually, we, we definitely can't leave gaming out of there uh, as well. And actually, Web 2 is starting to have an impact for the first time ever, probably in Web 3. So now it is the cultural event of the year. I'm wondering if something similar happened with you guys, where you kind of started out with DeFi and you're like, wow, yep. this innovation is like nothing I've ever seen. And then you were like, oh my God, it's actually so much deeper than I imagined. Like walk me through what the thought process was from expanding past just DeFi, so to speak. Well, anecdotally, personally, like uh, DeFi summer was the single most uh, eye-opening era over the last three years for me personally. It was the first time a consumer, a set of consumer applications um, were being built and being used by a ton of people. Um, I, I saw the, um, you know, some of the areas of 10x improvement by building an application on a decentralized network. Um, and I was really degen. If you remember back then, my, my tweets were all like, were, were super, like, was all like trading and shit like that. I don't do that anymore. Like nowadays, my tweets are all like, you know, long term stuff. And the reason for that now, is, now you're focused on the fundamentals. That's what we say. <laughs> the, the the reason behind that is just that uh, since DeFi summer and now, which has been like it's been like a year and a half, DeFi is becoming. I mean, there's again like a continuous innovation in DeFi, but there there has been a ton of innovation elsewhere in NFTs and NFTs was started probably spring last year, and then. Um, Somewhere in the summer, we saw the rise of a couple of uh, decentralized social networks, right? Including, I mean, to me, like Mirror is is a blogging platform, but it's also a social net. Uh, and then there's like BigCloud. Um, BigCloud didn't have a great reputation, but I, I think they're doing something very interesting, to be honest. And I think that's only that only gives us a glimpse in, into what's going to happen this year. I think this year is actually going to be a really good year for, for social nets. There's going to be so many interesting experiments. They're going to be really hard to build. In my opinion, social nets are probably going to be a lot harder to build than like DeFi because you have to build a lot of shit from the ground up and the kind of user base that you're going to handle is a lot bigger. But anyway, so like social nets, um, you know, NFTs, oh, game, right? Uh, towards the end of last year when Axie just completely took off and got so many copy pastas. Um, like there, I, I saw like maybe at least 200 projects uh, building crypto games over the last few months. And... Maybe half of them come from like traditional AAA uh, or like very reputed, um, you know, game developers like Ubisoft, the, the likes of Ubisoft, um, Blizzard kind of stuff. Um, so just the amount of talent that's flowing into all these different vectors um, gave us the motivation to actually for, during the fundraise, like after we, we announced the fundraise to uh, rebrand from DeFi Alliance to Simply Alliance because the word DeFi Alliance no longer represents what we do. Um, we're interested in in all areas of of, uh, of Web three. Can I can I ask you one DeFi related question here? Uh, maybe call on your legacy <laughs> legacy thought process here. But um, one one narrative that's kind of emerged uh, that I'd love to get your perspective on is the idea of DeFi two And when I kind of so like if if you go back all the way to DeFi summer, uh, you know, talking about that being one of the the fastest eras of innovation that crypto has ever seen. You know, there were a couple of different novel things that happened there. 
right? Um, there were, first of all, these financial primitives that people have talked about for a long time. So you had kind of the basic financial infrastructure getting laid. You had the borrow and lend protocols, right? You had like the compounds and the Aves of the world. You had the Uniswaps of the world, right? Decentralized exchanges, et cetera. So you did the basic foundation laid in terms of these financial primitives. You found a novel way of creating liquidity around those primitives as well, right? That was yield farming, essentially. Um, and that was really, really good uh, for DeFi in the very beginning. It bootstrapped a whole bunch of growth. You brought the first users on, the first real degens, uh, which Chow, I know you, <laughs> of which I know you were one. Um, now, I think you're starting to see something pretty interesting, which is, I think, kind of a renewed focus on tokenomics in general, right? So a lot of the air has kind of been let out of the uh, liquidity mining bubble, so to speak, right? There was, a, there was a big problem with kind of mercenary mining in general. And I think actually trying to solve that problem has led to a whole bunch of interesting pockets of innovation that you're seeing across the DeFi spectrum. So I would point to what's going on basically at Curve, uh, you know, with their with their VE tokens in general. I think that's really interesting. I think some of the um, changes that they're making over at Urine Finance uh, in general is is quite interesting. And I know I want to talk a little bit about that new project uh, that Andre just launched on, on Phantom. But in general, what it looks like is happening is that you're starting to see a bunch of novel solutions for those base infrastructure type companies. You're solving the problem of liquidity mining. Um, and there's actually a renewed focus on, okay, guys, we all have a token, right? That's very exciting. But how can we actually change the incentive structures within our token to create real value or to ha to incentivize different outcomes? Um, so I'd love to just get your thoughts on where we are in terms of some of the innovation that's going on in the newer DeFi projects, as well as kind of some of those legacy blue chips. I, I have a couple of very strong opinions that I think a lot of people won't like, and in fact, it might offend some people. Uh, the, the advice that, that, I, that I always give to our founders that are very new to this space is that is don't focus on token economics. Focus on building a, a kick-ass product first. Build, focus on building a product that, you, that, that at least 100 people love and would recommend their friends to use before even thinking about token economics. The only exception is if the token is the product itself, in, in the case of Axie, for instance, or, or like play to earn games, right? But in, when it comes to governance tokens, I always re advise our founders to not even think about it um, before you build a good product. And the reason for that is token economics, despite all the recent um, innovation and so on, it's a go-to-market strategy for the vast majority of, of crypto projects. In other words, it's, 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 marketing, it's marketing budget. However, if you don't have a great product that people use yet, then using token economics to, to acquire users is a total waste of marketing budget. It's a very expensive marketing budget. So you don't want to use it. You don't want to think about it until you, you build a great product. So that's how I think about token economics. So as a result, I don't even actually spend a ton of time thinking about tokens. Um, I, I do have some you know, very high level like best practices. Um, so, so that's one point. The other point uh, is DeFi 2.0. I think, you know, a lot of people talk about DeFi 2.0, but I think it's been a false narrative. I think that the kind of, the, the actual DeFi 2.0 that's really interesting for me is uh, related to what you just said, Michael, is that during DeFi summer, we laid out the, the, the base layer of uh, DeFi protocols and applications, which is, um, you know, the AMMs, the DEXs, the basic lending, uh, lending platforms, which are basically money market um, uh, products, uh, stable coins, um, and maybe uh, some other minor ones. But these are the core primitives. To me, the next stage of DeFi 
or DeFi, uh, which people call DeFi 2.0, should be the layer on top of it, right? Which is what we're seeing with the likes of Ribbon, right? It's a structured product that is based on a lower layer of options, right? Um, and then there's derivatives, right? Which again are a low are a layer above the spot market, right? Because derivatives have have underlying spot market. They all have a lot underlying spot markets. So this is the kind of um, uh, DeFi 2.0 for me. That's really interesting. It's the layer above the what was built during DeFi summer, if, if that makes sense. And just to add a few points, um, what we're also starting to see is many of the traditional DeFi protocols that have been around for a couple of years now are pivoting to the curve mechanics uh, as we speak. So you mentioned Yearn earlier, and we're starting to see more and more DeFi protocols and DAOs that are starting to use this as a methodology to increase uh, stakeholders along with that, make sure that the token holders that are a part of this ecosystem are here for the long term versus just dumping a token and leaving. And so I guess from a long-term perspective, we're going to start to see tokenomics change and we're going to start to see protocols starting to change from their like previous mechanic to a newer mechanic that's actually going to be working. So I still believe uh, we're in the experimental phase of tokenomics. Uh, and so expect to see many DeFi protocols change over time through governance. Uh, the other is uh, you mentioned protocol on liquidities via DeFi 2.0. Uh, it's a really interesting novel idea of being able to allow protocols to own their own liquidity as a way to, you know, uh, uh, lower emissions. And then along with that, think about how that, those tokens are going to provide long-term value to the people that are part of the, the, the protocol. The problem that we're starting to see um, recently was a pool together uh, announced uh, its uh, update of doing a partnership with Olympus Pro. And what ended up happening was that Olympus Pro, yes, it added a bit of value, but they found that over time, providing tokens through just a traditional liquidity mining program, it, there's no difference between the two. Interesting. And so we're starting to see more and more data that's coming out that shows that I think we still have some work to do on the protocol and liquidity side as well. Okay. So I think there are kind of two different subject matters that are emerging here, which is one, uh, this idea about tokenomics in general, uh, and two, kind of some of the opportunities that get created by laying the foundational base layer of financial infrastructure, right? Those kind of Gen 1 DeFi companies. And they actually create, there's like, once they get created, there's a whole bunch of problems that didn't exist before. That's opportunity for the next slew of protocols, companies, whatever. I want to talk about uh, tokenomics for one second. And that, that's actually really interesting because, you know, when you look at something like Olympus DAO, which has gathered a whole bunch of attention, right? People kind of just call it uh, the most elegantly designed Ponzi of all time. Which it kind of is. It's it's almost awe-inspiring. It? Uh, it's very impressive. Um, and, but uh, at the same time, there are a lot of people who don't really love the whole like 3-3 meme. But then they look at something like Olympus Pro. They say, wow, this is actually really interesting novel stuff here. Uh, so it's interesting. I, I actually am not super familiar with what went on with Pool Together. Why? Can you talk about just the difference between, I guess, liquidity mining, protocol-owned liquidity, and what are some of the problems that are emerging with protocol-owned liquidity? Because I'd actually kind of heard that touted as, oh, this is this is actually the solution here. I mean, ultimately, it just comes down to, like, how do you provide the emissions for your token and who's able to, uh, you know, who ends up becoming your stakeholder at the end of the day? Um, and so if you look at, like, traditional liquidity mining programs, uh, you ultimately have liquidity providers that just provide 
liquidity, and in return, they get tokens that are freely exchanged for whatever they want. The problem with this model is that you're essentially giving up your equity of your, your company as, uh, to a certain regard. And ultimately, the people that are receiving the tokens may or may not hold a token for the long term. So the question in return is like, um, who are these stakeholders and why are they buying our token and how active are they going to be within our protocol for the next 12, 24, 36 months? If you look at traditional raises, I mean, traditional raises, like, and we're talking like Web2, um, ultimately you have stakeholders that invest and they their outcomes are going to be 10 years plus, right? And within those 10 years, you have a lot of value that's being added uh, that's going to ultimately help to start up out. Uh, in this case, you know, it's completely inverse, which is you get the token, it's freely traded, and you could, you know, sell it and then move on to the next protocol, which is, that, which is what is happening today. Uh, and so there's this huge discount of regards to what the protocol does, along with the founders that are participating in this. Protocol-owned liquidity is essentially bonds that are being sold, uh, which would ultimately unlock over time. Tokens would unlock over time based on how much and how long you've provided liquidity for. Uh, and so Olympus does this for other protocols. And you could think of this as a way to of a protocol and protocol, protocol to protocol relationship that could be, you know, done predetermined for X amount of time. And so protocols are ultimately giving up less of their missions. And then they have partners like Olympus and others that are able to provide long term uh uh, become a long-term stakeholder in these protocols. So it's a difference in terms of the stakeholders that are involved and the difference in emissions that are given. Um, but ultimately, it's uh, it allows, it gives uh, protocols more or less uh, a stronger relationship with Olympus, and then it also gives less of the emissions out to the to the community. Well, one one thing that this makes me think about when you when you talk about different stakeholders, if you were like me and you listened to the Fred Wilson interviews back in 2017, 2018, and you heard, you know, one of the things that uh, it wasn't people weren't saying Web3 back then. They're like, one of the innovations here is that there's no longer a separation in between the investors and the user, right? You were, those were supposed to be the exact same thing. And that's this beautiful alignment of incentives and it was all going to work very nicely. But I feel like one thing that's actually played out in practice uh, for, from a tokenomics perspective on a wider scale is that you still actually do have those two separate scales sets of stakeholders. You do have the users and you kind of do have the investors. Maybe they were more similar at the beginning of DeFi summer, but uh, you know, I guess two things is one, now that you have more sophisticated investors saying, wow, we can actually hop in here and generate huge yields. You do have a separate investor class. And then I would say, you know, even what like Suzu was pointing out with this whole like L1 debate, I think there were two very separate uh, sets of stakeholders in Ethereum's blockchain, which was the asset holders, right? The people that held ETH. And then you had new users who were trying to come into the ecosystem. And I think you saw very clearly their, those uh, sets of incentives diverge. And I think with upgrades like EIP-1559, you saw a preference given to asset holders as opposed to new users. And that kind of created th this entire new multi-chain future. Um, so that's why I think like the tokenomics thing is actually quite interesting because Chow, I completely agree with you. I hear you at the beginning. You should not be thinking about that, right? Get your token out into the world. Uh, it's marketing. It's you're trying to get users on board, et cetera. But at a certain point, I'm starting to notice a pattern, which is, okay, at the very beginning, you want to get your protocol far and wide. You want to get your token far and wide. You want to put a bid underneath it, right? You want to make sure that it's liquid. You want to get it out to as many people as possible. But then like two or three years down the line, the people who hold that token say, wait a second, I want this to go up. I want number to go up here. I don't care so much about the spreading anymore. I own a lot of this. I'd like it. I'd like it to go up. And uh, then you kind of see this divergence in incentives. That was a long ramble. But do you 
generally agree with that? Do you see that as being kind of an issue that needs to get solved? It's a very hard question. Uh, I, I, I did hear a, a similar argument recently. I, for, I forgot who said that, but it, it made me think. So someone said um, uh, th there's a natural tension between users and, and the, uh, the token holders because users want something that's as cheap as possible. But investors want to uh, extract as much value as possible from users. So there's a natural tension. Um, so I can, I can see that argument. However, I do think, I also think that in order for investors or token holders to maximize or, or for their bags to go up, they need to offer the best product. Uh, and being cheap is one of the, is one of the, the, the key, key ingredients of, of a good product. If you offer a cheap product, you can acquire even more users. And then the aggregate, which is number of users times the fees, will actually go up. So th that, that's the counter argument to, to your argument, right? Um, so to be very honest, again, like th this might offend some of the Ethereum maximalists, but in my opinion, the, the prioritization of the burn, the 1559 over utility was in fact not the optimal de decision for token holders. They, even if they prioritize utility, at the expense of the actual token economics of, you know, accruing value to the tokens, I think in the long run, the token holders will actually see their bags go up even more. And, and this actually is very interesting because you're, it's like, if you look at all of these protocols, you know, a part of their strategy is to meme their token to build community because ultimately over time, uh, that commute, those community members that are, bought, or that are bought in to these protocols could also ultimately become defensible against competitors. Uh, against bag holders, increasing kind of bag holder bias. You could think about it that way. And ultimately just making sure that some of these tokens become like cultural, culturally relevant. So a good example of this is Chainlink, right? And so Chainlink has been around for, for a couple of years now in terms of how they built a very successful community. And even if you look at it today, um, many of the Chainlink holders uh, and its community are very, very defensive. And so whenever there's new competitors out there like Pith Network and others, you'll start to see articles, tweets, all discussing why you shouldn't buy their token versus buying Chainlink's token. Uh, and it's, it's actually very important, right? So you have to have a, like a founders that are thinking about building community uh, and its token, you know, part of the token, like I agree with everything which I was saying, uh, but you know, there is an element of building community and being culturally relevant. Uh, and so Polygon's done this really well, uh, Chainlink, um, Terra, you know, I mean, I can keep going on in terms of examples and you could essentially just meme yourself to success as well, which is what some protocols have done in the past. You don't want the link Marines coming after you. I will say that, um, <laughs> they're a formidable group. Uh, they're, yeah, I, 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 I would always hesitate to talk about Chainlink. <laughs> I think that, I think Chainlink, that may be a controversial opinion. They've got to be one of the most important companies or protocols in all of crypto, uh, just in terms of what they, they do. Are. Yep. I, I would, yeah, they just don't get, agree. and I actually don't think they get enough uh, credit. Um, I, I have one more question on this just division of incentives here, uh, and then we can move on. I'm just really curious about it. So to get back to that idea of like attention in between the desire for the asset to appreciate and for the asset to be cheap so that users can get it, I kind of feel like the solution that people in Ethereum have given is L2s to that. They're like, okay, we did EIP 1559, right? We, we want our asset to go up, but the solution is L2s. The big question that's unanswered there is, are there going to be tokens on the L2s? I would argue that there have to be. 
So then what you actually have is a whole other set of users. I feel like what the Ethereum people, the assumption that they're making is that these people that are building on the L2s, which by the way, will have all the users, all the apps are going to launch on the L2s. What they're saying is that they're going to be okay with the value accruing back to Ethereum. But I kind of think it's more logical to think the people who own the ZK token or whatever it ends up being are going to want the same thing that Ethereum eventually wanted, which they are also going to have to deal with the same inherent tension between cheapness and usability and the token appreciation. So they're kind of like kicking the can down the road by three years or something like that. Um, And eventually the token, because the new people who come in, new users, they're not even going to touch ETH. It's way too expensive. Uh, So they're going to go right to ZK token. And eventually they're going to say the same thing that ETH people wanted, which is like, why would I want all this value to accrue back to Ethereum indirectly? I want it to accrue to my token that I actually use. But I don't know. What do you guys think about that that argument? I mean, is the argument there, Mike, as well, like that L2s eventually can become, if L, as soon as L2s launch a token, uh, that, that makes them almost parasitic to the L1s? It means that I think that Ethereum, the Ethereum community has, uh, they've given the stamp of approval. They said the way we're going to solve this uh, mismatch of incentives is through layer twos. But I don't, and I think what, I think the assumption is that the people in these L2 communities will think the same way that they do and have the same sets of incentives. What I'm saying is you're creating a new community with a new token, and they're going to have different incentives, a different set of incentives, actually, than Ethereum. And they're going to face the same choice, I think, that Ethereum did, which was, are we going to favor the users or are we going to try to uh, appreciate value to the token? And they're probably going to make the same decision that the Ethereum community did, I would say, at the end of the day. Uh, which will be contrary to the interests of Ethereum. That's my, that's my argument. I think. I, I, uh, I totally. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I actually tweeted about this exact problem maybe a year ago. I, I, I was wondering if the L2. I mean, it was very clear that L2s will launch a token. All of them will launch a token. But the question I had in mind was: Will the new token, the L2 tokens, be parasitic to the, to ETH, or are they going to be synergistic to ETH? And I didn't have a good answer. I still don't have a good answer. I think there will be, you're spot on that there's going to be a natural tension between the L2 token holders and, and ETH token holders. However, I think the tension is even bigger between the L2 token holders and the other L1s because that's where the biggest competition is. And I think between the Ethereum L2s and, and Ethereum mainnet itself, uh, it's not a zero-sum game. I, I think, obviously, success of L2 and the success of L2 tokens should be um, net beneficial to Ethereum, even though there is a tension. However, it may it could be a close to a zero-sum game between the L2s and the other L1s, right? Because that's where the, the, the most of the competition is. Anyway, so that's just just a educated guess. I, I have no idea, to be honest. I've thought a bit about this, and Chana talked about this as well. Um, you know, we're definitely seeing what's happening with Ethereum with all the layer twos. Ethereum is essentially becoming a an execution layer, right, and a storage layer to a certain degree. Uh, whereas all of the transactions are being conducted on layer layer twos, and so you could argue that layer twos are capturing uh, transactions, whereas Ethereum is really capturing the storage and the execution layer. And we could say today that, well, you know. There isn't enough transactions to make Ethereum or Layer 2s very valuable. But if you believe that, you know, you know, the future of crypto and uh, uh, decentralized applications are going to happen on Layer 1s, Layer 2s, then you could expect um, apps to be built in the millions of transactions per second, right? 
And so if you're thinking about it from that perspective, then you can see that there could be a lot of value that could be added back to Ethereum uh, over time. And then layer twos can capture like the marginal transactions that are happening on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. That's a great argument, I think. Um, I, I guess um, then maybe like, so pausing on that for a second, moving back to this, I'd like the new opportunities, right? That get created from the foundation of DeFi being laid, right? So let's say, I, I would pick your pick your list of financial primitives, right? That got laid in the first. So Aave and Compound kind of borrow and lend, decentralized exchanges, right? Exchanges, you're starting to see the birth of new financial primitives, right? Like options. You're starting to see some pretty, like, you know, you mentioned ribbon finance, uh, which is really, really interesting. So what are, I guess, some of the, white space areas of opportunity that you still see for new financial primitives and then like what are some of the what are some of the problems that didn't even exist before we had the original infrastructure layer that are now getting solved by these new whatever call it gen 2 DeFi protocols or teams so uh structured products is is a big one um you know we we saw the opportunity with ribbon uh over a year ago and nowadays, everyone's talking about, talking about structured products. There's a lot of competitors, uh, especially on Solana and, and, and elsewhere. Um, interest rates, interest rates is, is an interesting one. Uh, I'm not entirely sure um, why they haven't taken off yet. We, we also made a, a few big bets. Uh, well, not big bets, but a few bets uh, almost a year ago. Um, the likes of Pendle. Uh, you know, Notional went through our accelerator program as well, and there's a couple others. Um, I assume it's because, you know, both sides of those interest rate products need to be uh, institutions um, because rates inherently are not as volatile as like spot markets, and therefore retail don't give a shit about that. Um, <laughs> so I guess the market isn't mature enough for that yet, but I think we'll get there. I think I think if you look at the history of, of traditional markets, uh, it just keeps on getting more and more complex and higher 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 and higher level, right? Agreed. So um, you know, interest rates, uh, structured products, and eventually we're going to see very exotic derivatives, which a couple of really good teams are building right now, as well uh, from traditional finance. So by exotic derivatives, I mean the the likes of like barrier options, Parisian options, like things that you've never heard of, but some of the, some of the products are, are very popular in tradition, in some uh, regions of the world, um, uh, in, in traditional markets, um, very, very complex uh, options. And then um, I think, I think algo uh, stable coins are still very interesting. Uh, they're very hard. I actually, I actually don't think the, the, the algo itself is that hard. Um, I think ultimately a lot of algo stablecoin projects will converge to something similar to Frax, um, which to me is, has been the best design so far. Uh, however, the, the, the biggest challenge with the algo stablecoins is, is not the design, it's, it's not the algo itself. Uh, it's the integration with the rest of the ecosystem and the bet that uh, centralized stablecoins will eventually run into trouble with uh, regulators. Um, because right now people really prefer USDC, uh, and in certain regions of the world, people prefer USDT over the, the pure algo stablecoins. I, I personally feel very comfortable with USDC. I think they're very, you know, trustworthy. I think it's fully backed. Um, so then the bet is really that regular regulators will eventually not like them. Uh, th th those two are the biggest challenges with the stablecoins. Um, Obviously, like 
perpetual swaps. I, I don't think anyone has won yet. Uh, you know, DYDX w- was part of our Genesis cohort, but I think it's going to get the competition will get very heated in perpetual swaps. Um, and the, the I guess the the argument for that is if you look at like you know the centralized exchanges, um, Binance FTX came out of nowhere, 2018, 2019, just crushed everybody else. Um, I, I think. The mode is actually not very high for this kind of products. So really the mode is the raw execution ability of the team. Uh, so competition will get very heated. Uh, so these are some of the things that, that, uh, that I'm seeing from my perspective. Empire is proud to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight. You would never go directly to an airline, right? You'd never go directly to United or Delta. You'd obviously go to Google Flights or Expedia or Kayak or Booking.com. That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier. It makes it faster. It makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH. Polygon, as you can see here, BSC, they recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago. Pretty exciting. If you are a trader listening to this, you are losing money by not using Paraswap. And excitingly enough, if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of DEXs, you can now use Paraswap's APIs to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the DEX aggregator into your platform. So head on over to paraswap.io. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how simple it is to use. Just plug in. Let's say I want to swap you know, 0.2 ETH. For USDT, you can see how simple it is. Just plug that in right there and it aggregates over 80 different DEXs. So head on over to Paraswap, P-A-R-A-S-W-A-P dot I-O to use the platform today. All right, let's get back to the show. Chow, how are you, like during DeFi summer, I remember you talking a lot about like the end game for DeFi. Uh, there were a couple of different like public posts that you did. It was like the end game for DeFi is basically becoming the base layer of TradFi. So like you build, you build DeFi, you build like the lend and borrow with Aave, like Mike talked about in Compound, you build the spot exchange. Then, you know, now we're starting to see like rates and futures and derivatives and options and things like that. And it felt like your conclusion was the end game is then finance gets built on top of it. Uh, I saw a recent post that you did where you were talking about there's a new end game. You've kind of changed your thesis here where the end game is that the metaverse and basically the digital world will be so much larger than the physical world. And DeFi becomes the backbone of basically how digital assets are custodied and transferred and traded and hedged and borrowed in this metaverse world. Am I, is that a, is that a fair conclusion? Like, have you kind of changed your thesis on this? Yeah, that, that was that was the the major pivot, one of the most one of the biggest pivots in my thinking around DeFi. Um, my my original thesis uh, came out when when I when I saw a bunch of people say things like uh, DeFi will eat TradFi. I, I actually I completely disagree with that. Like DeFi is not there to like completely just replace TradFi. DeFi is actually a open platform of innovation for everyone to build on top of. So TradFi will build on top of DeFi. So that, that vision will still happen. However, I don't think that's that's what makes DeFi really, really interesting. Uh, I think what makes DeFi really, really interesting is the fact that the digital economy, which basically at some point will just become the crypto economy, will get far bigger than the physical economy or the traditional economy at some point. It'll take several decades, but we're seeing that. And also given the fact that we saw a bunch of like 
a bunch of uh, apps that took off uh, last year in you know gaming, in social, in NFTs. That really gave me the confidence that this crypto economy is going to get really, really big at some point. And if you th- if you accept that as the end vision, then it's very natural to think that DeFi. What makes DeFi really interesting is become the financial infrastructure for that world, for the pure digital crypto economy world, rather than having anything to do with with traffic. I mean, of course, traffic will build on DeFi, but that's not really what makes DeFi interesting. So that's how I pivoted um, my thinking. And just a note on Charles' thinking is that right now you're starting to see um, traditional uh, firms getting into DeFi through uh, gated protocols like Aave and uh, there's a few other protocols that are building compound treasury and, and others are building specifically for TradeFi. And I think that's great for short term, but long term, uh, we think that once the metaverse and the full decentralized Web3 ecosystem takes off, we'll probably see many of them leave traditional uh, like sandbox environments and start to participate in the in the bigger environment in the metaverse. I also think just, you know, in terms of uh, where the rubber meets the road between TradFi and DeFi, let's say, I, I think that probably the the high frequency trading community or the market making community or whatever, anyone that's like deeply involved in the microstructure of traditional capital markets will do much, much better than like, banks per se. Um, you know, I'll say we've spoken to over the last six months, you can also look it up that a lot of them have spoken at our conferences and things in the past, like uh, you know, some of the largest high frequency traders, market makers in the world. And I can tell you their understanding of this space is very sophisticated. And I, I think the reason that it intuitively makes sense to them is because you go back to like Michael Lewis's Flash Boys. These were the only guys that really understood how the original capital market setup worked, right? Like they were running arbitrage, uh, you know, that that required you to just understand at a very micro level um, how this market structure really worked. So I feel like they are going to adopt much more quickly what's going on in DeFi. They're like, oh, this is just a different set of rules for us to optimize in game. And they're just really well set up for it, frankly. I, I, I have a question there, actually, which is like, if TradFi continues to exist, will consumers interact with DeFi in the same way that they interact with TradFi? Let, let's say like five to 10 years from now. So like the way that I interact with TradFi right now is like, I've got my my you know, JP Morgan or Bank of America or like a, you know, maybe my TD Ameritrade account and I trade through these brokerages. Uh, I've talked to a couple of people in the last, like actually this week alone, who've said that DeFi composability with non-DeFi apps is starting to be the most interesting thing that they're looking at. And what I mean by this is like, uh, if you build Discord on Crypto Rails, you can now embed compose, you know, you can embed DeFi inside of Discord so that you never actually have to leave the Discord to trade or maybe bet on a sports game or something like this. And and obviously it extends beyond DeFi, right? Like if you built a Notion on Crypto Rails, you could have Snapshot inside of Notion or Snapshot inside of Slack. So how will people interact with DeFi in, or just their bank, like their quote unquote banks or their financial applications in like five to 10 years? I think you brought up a very good point, and I agree with. Uh, and we saw that with uh, some of the crypto games, right? Like, the, pe- people are, are are doing the trading sort of like it, it's not exactly in game, but it, it, they're doing like you know trading of those in game items via DeFi rails, right? Um, so that that's exactly that's analogous to, to what you just mentioned about Discord and and putting DeFi into the Discord. Um, I think the uh, the user experience uh, would just get far better with composability. And again, once again, like that's if if you ever participate in DeFi Summer, you, you know you know that inherently because with traditional finance products, 
you have all these different accounts, but for every account that you want to open, you have to do KYC uh, for each one of them. You have to open an account and then go through all that pain. And then when you withdraw money, it takes like two days, especially if you withdraw a large amount of money. If you want to move from one account to another, you have to withdraw from your, like let's say you want to uh, move from your bro one of your brokerage account to another. Uh, you have to withdraw to your bank account for it takes a couple of days and then from your bank, bank account to, to the brokerage account, to the other brokerage account. And if, it, if it's a large um, amount, you have to get approval from, from your bank. And then you get a call from them, you miss the call, and then you know you have to call them back, and then you stay on the phone for forty minutes. You can't even explain it. Um, you, you, like they ask you a bunch of questions. Like it's it's really it's really painful. With DeFi, if you ever participate in DeFi summer, you know that moving your money from one platform to another, even if Ethereum takes like ten seconds per block and tons of failed transactions, it's still far better than that TradFi experience that takes like five days. Right. It, the, 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 the experience of, you know, the frictionless way of moving money from one, one account to another is just so much better than TradFi. And as the infrastructure, the, the crypto infrastructure gets better and faster, uh, this experience will only get better. And, you know, there's some interesting anecdotes that, that I've seen over the past eight years, um, which I think could be relevant for our conversation. One is like when, you know, crypto first started, there wasn't actually like a bank that supports crypto until Silvergate came in. Right. And and they got, they were able to grab early users. And at that point, they weren't whales. They were considered just like random users. Uh, but over time, like as Bitcoin appreciated, so did their value and their net worth. And they ultimately became the bank for every crypto uh, whale that was out there. And over time, they built that infrastructure support to allow uh, them to work on, uh, be able to interact with DeFi and crypto and the whole nine yards. And I think that's going to happen in, in DeFi as well. And so an example of this is um, Axie Infinity. Axie Infinity right now has its own layer two. Um, and over time, they're going to offer their own AMM. They're going to offer their own lending protocol. And then over time, they could just become a bank for all of the gamers that are playing on Axie as an example. And they could, and that bank, and if they were to offer this full-fledged service, they could become one of the largest banks in the world. I do think there is going to be an, an opportunity for DeFi protocols and gamers and gaming protocols to fundamentally build uh, on top of these rails, capture these users, and, also, and over time build out a banking infrastructure so that they just keep the users all in one place. Even if you think about Aave, Aave has built out this incredible DeFi protocol and now they're thinking about offering a potential social network for all of those users, right? And so you're starting to see these protocols evolve from just becoming a protocol that offers X to offering X, Y, and Z. Almost every app I've seen is I've seen so far is eventually going to blur the line between DeFi, gaming, and social. They're all going to have at least two of the three at some point. So just one thing on the Ave thing. I love Stani. I love Ave, one of my favorite companies in the space. It feels really obvious that Axie would go build out a bank because they have the distribution and all the players and things like that. It feels much tougher to go build a social network if you have if you're a financial applications company. Uh, I just think about like how much work the Web two companies. Something I want to talk about later in the conversation, just like Web two integrating into Web three and things like that. But like the amount of work that Instagram and Facebook and Twitter have done to make just the most addicting, like seamless user interfaces and user experiences. Uh, I don't know. I'm not really buying that someone leaves Twitter to go spend time on like Aave's social network. 
Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see what they come out with. Um, but like, if you look at um, like Chase, right? They offer Zelle. Um, and ultimately what I do now with Zelle is I have this huge contact list and I just share and receive, uh, you know, X amount of dollars to, through my network of friends. Um, if you think about it from that concept, that's kind of like a social network, right? Uh, it's not very public facing where I'm tweeting or things like that, but Zelle is ultimately competing with Venmo and Venmo, you could argue is a social net, um, because you could post, uh, you know, post about the financial transactions and, you know, that is an element of a social net. And so... I don't know exactly how Ave is going to do it, but I do know that, you know, I've seen financial services provide something that was very close, but they haven't really gone 10x on it. So, Jason, your, your impression, I think that's due to the fact that most of the traditional finance products that, that we use are really boomer products like Chase, JP Morgan, Interactive Brokers. Like th these are companies that were built like a century ago. And they're extremely slow to actually go social. They're, they don't understand our generation and the generations younger. However, if you look at the latest, the most modern financial applications, which I love, TradingView, eToro, like... Actually, public.com. Public.com has become a social network. If you guys have ever played around with public.com, you see what all your other friends are investing in. Uh, you upvote, you downvote, you can laugh at other people for having invested in a stock that didn't do well. Like it's basically a trading network. Have you seen Stock Twits? Stock Twits yeah. tried to do this as well. I think they raised yeah, like yeah. hundred million bucks yeah, recently. Yeah, Howard Lindsay. Actually, thing. Yeah. all the modern financial applications are are, are going are going social, or if they haven't already. Can Can I also? Do, I think there are multiple. Like one thing that's very hard to imagine is you naturally have a pretty skeuomorphic idea of what web two social platforms look like, right? So you're like, well, how is Ave going to build a better Instagram than Instagram? And they're not probably, but there, there's a chance that there are different layers that go into building a social net, right? There's kind of like what the graph is doing or whatever, trying to build like the social graph. And that's a very technical, like database level project. And then there's a chance that someone else could build the infrastructure on top of that. So you actually weirdly have like one underlying social graph and then multiple different user interfaces that get built on top. I, I don't really know how it ends up looking. I, I do feel pretty strongly that I don't think whatever social platforms we end up using in the future really look like, they're not going to look exactly like Twitter or Instagram did. I just think they're going to look very different. No, imagine having cam cameras, right? And you, you're like, okay, we're going to put cameras in our phone. You're like, okay, you can take pictures. You don't start thinking about Snapchat. <laughs> I mean, Snapchat's no way, a great example. There's no way to predict that. Right or putting a GPS in a phone. There's no way to predict that Uber and Lyft come out of that. Imagine trying to explain Snapchat to someone before the iPhone. You're like, you can take a picture and send it to someone, and then it will disappear. And this company's going to be worth two hundred fifty billion dollars. <laughs> like they wouldn't even understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd like to get your guys. Did you guys see the critique of Web three that the founder of Signal wrote? Yep. I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts uh, because I actually thought that he made some really compelling points, frankly, uh, in that post. So I'd love to get both of your guys' thought because there has been a lot of pushback recently from Web2 founders specifically about Web3. I don't know, like Jack really surprised me. Um, I guess, you know, how vehemently he's come out against it. Um, but, you know, more than that, there's like the founder of Box. I saw Brian Chesky, Airbnb founder, coming coming out and really pushing hard against this idea of Web3. And... Uh, and then I read that that piece uh, from the founder of Signal. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on some of this pushback. Any direct response, I guess, that piece in particular. Which which argument did you like personally? 
So here, my, I, let me skip to them and tell you my framework for why they're, I think they're pushing back. I think if you put yourself in the shoes of someone who's worked in Web2 or solved Web2 problems in general, just think about how you look at the world. The business model of Web2 internet was a game of aggregation, right? You were all about like your religion. What you went to work thinking about was how can I more efficiently aggregate audiences and then how can I either sell them ads or connect transactions and take a fee there? So when you look out into the world and you're like, I see opportunities here, I see opportunities here, you are generally in the back of your head trying to solve those problems. Like that's your view of how businesses get created. Then Web3 comes along and the people in Web3 look at the world through a very different lens. They say all that stuff that you built in Web2 is, is the problem. That is That is what we're trying to solve, just exactly how effectively you built your company. So that that argument that he made, uh, it was something to the effect of like the, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about, like here, like the user interface is never going to be as good. What I heard, what I heard, I, I hear him making that argument, but my, but my thought process was that he's looking at the world with a different set of problems than I think a lot of people operating in the Web3 space are. That was my ultimate take on it. My my take on it is that he's looking at the problems and not thinking about. I mean, he re- he's a really smart guy, right? He built Signal. Uh, Signal's an amazing platform. He's thinking about the space as it exists now, as if there's going to be no improvements, right? It's like I think it was I think it was Balaji who tweeted out this thing. He's like, this is kind of like comparing. Uh, he's like, think back to when Reed Hastings wanted to bring uh, Netflix DVDs online, and he knew it was something we had to do, but the bandwidth wasn't there. And he's like, okay, we want to do streaming, not this year. We want to do streaming, not this year. We want to do streaming. Okay, now the bandwidth is good enough. And I think the Balaji's argument there is that Moxie or whatever his name is isn't isn't actually looking farther into the future. So right now you've got kind of like centralized, decentralized, merging together with, but not understanding that the ultimate goal is that as as this technology keeps improving, that decentralized will become the goal. My main counter argument against all so okay there 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 are two things right like if I look at all, all these um, Web two folks um, dismissing Web three I think honestly the the main reason is just that a ton of talent is 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 leaving Web two going to Web three mm. and as well as capital and they're really feeling it I I feel it like the there I I guess so many um, Engineers and PMs from uh, big tech, from Fang and, um, and and Silicon Valley startups getting into Web three, so they're they're feeling that that pain right now. Um, but more concretely, my my main counter argument against all of them is that they're looking at Web three. They're looking at all the dimensions in which Web three are worse than Web two, and completely ignore ignoring the 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 few dimensions where Web3 is better than Web2. And I, I tweeted this, but it reminds me of um, the comparison between mobile and desktop about a decade ago, where people used to say um, mobile is just way worse than desktop when it comes to performance, uh, hardware, and so on and so forth. Like basically mobile was worse than desktop in every single dimension you can possibly think of, except for one which is that mobile is lighter, smaller, and therefore it's portable. You can carry it everywhere with you. And that one dimension in which mobile is better than desktop enables whole new sets of experiences. And if you look at today, what's happening today is uh, both mobile and desktop still exist and ubiquitous. 
And I think the same thing is going to happen between Web 2 and Web 3. Web 2 folks think that Web Web 3 will replace them. And a lot of Web 3 folks also think that Web 3 will replace Web 2. But that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is both Web 2 and Web 3 will coexist because they enable different experiences. I I really like that. Chat, there's a there's a Twitter account that I think you guys would all appreciate. Have you guys seen that Pessimists Archive? Have you seen this? <laughs> oh my god, it is so great. It's like they they've basically dug up um reporting on new fat new technologies at the time and what people reported on. Uh and there are like all these you can go back and see these art warning about the dangers of bicycle riding. <laughs> how dangerous it was going to be. People were going to break bones and collide with each other. And uh, how airplanes, uh, there was an, the New York Times reported on airplanes three, nine weeks before the Wright brothers did their first flight. They estimated one to 10 million years before a successful airplane could get engineered. So it's like this kind of cool look throughout history. And there's a, there's a recent one with Steve Ballmer when the iPhone came out and he is laughing. He's openly laughing at the iPhone. He's like, how could it ever succeed? It costs $500 and it doesn't even have a keyboard. <laughs> doesn't even have a keyboard. Uh, so it's just, there are these great examples. And I actually really like that. Chai, I didn't have to digest what you're saying. Because I also have been like, I think Web 2 and Web 3 are antithetical. But it is definitely possible that they should, they can and should coexist. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts on just where you see the rubber meeting the road there. Because in general... I think we're kind of moving into this next phase of crypto. And this is where I want to talk about maybe some of the specific projects you're excited about, your portfolio companies as well. Like where does the rubber meet the road in between Web 2 and Web 3? Because as excited as we all are about Web 3, Web 2 has all the users, right? So I have very conflicting thoughts when I hear about like Facebook rebranding as meta. And I don't know this, I heard this on your podcast, Jason, with Kyle and Tushar, but apparently the CEO of Instagram is like, yeah, we're going to do NFTs. So on the one hand, I'm, you know, I get excited about that, but I also see a whole bunch of problems with it. So I'd love to understand how you guys think about this because you have a lot of Web2 founders, right? So where do you see the rubber meeting the road in between these huge Web2 platforms? And, you know, how, how do these two worlds talk or connect? I do think um, Facebook might be the biggest threat to Web3 by being this Web2.0 platform. If you look at all their products, right? Instagram is going NFTs. Um, uh, WhatsApp, you can do payment on WhatsApp. And then Oculus VR. Like Facebook is such in such a great position to go Web3, even though they're not going to do it because Zuck is not that kind of person. So they're going to do some kind of Web 2.0, semi-decentralized kind of um, kind of thing, right? And then there's um, um, Libra, right? Um, which, in my opinion, might be one of the biggest threats to crypto-native L1s. And yet no one is talking about it. They have such a big distribution and so much, um, such a big war chest. Um, and they have such a big developer community that they've built over the years. Developers are basically kingmakers of L1s. Um, the, the, the tech actually doesn't matter that much, in my opinion. Um, so Facebook... It's a big threat. Um, it's something we're going to watch uh, over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I agree, like Facebook will be a threat, but we're also going to start to see, you know, many of the crypto native apps that are going to start to take shape of its own form. And and the way we think about this is I mentioned Axie Infinity, how it's creating kind of these new markets where it's going to be able to provide financial services as well. Um, and 
and we could see a drop off of you know those that use fin traditional financial services and use what Axie Infinity is building uh, as an example. And so we will start to see, I think, like a, a bifurcation of markets where we will see, you know, folks like Facebook and Instagram, they're going to create ways to engage their communities. And that's going to be through certain aspects like NFTs, as an example. Uh, but then you're also going to see newer markets that are going to start to uh, take off. That's going to fill a void, which is, has been missing in the space. Um, and so I, I think Axie Infinity is like positioned to do really well in this market. Um, you're going to start to see... Uh, you know, teams like OpenSea uh, that has had been one of the first marketplaces in, in crypto continue to gain market share. Uh, and then you're also going to see some older platforms that are going to interestingly provide real value back to consumers. And that could be in the shape of very basic uh, consumer apps where people deposit and earn yield as a way, as an example. Uh, and then you'll start to see newer things take off as well that, that Ave and others are building as well. I guess just to briefly respond, I completely agree with you. I've actually feel like I've ranted a lot about the threat of Facebook and Meta recently, so I'm not going to go off on a tangent uh, again about that, but I completely agree with you. Well, doesn't it come down to one decision that Facebook has to make? Like, does Facebook basically become interoperable with crypto protocols, right? And if they do, they have the biggest opportunity in the entire world right now. But if they don't, I think a lot of new users will not end up, like the, the Facebook metaverse won't end up getting used as much. Nothing about the DNA of Facebook or Zuck uh, suggests to me that he'd be cool being a participant of this new ecosystem. And then actually put yourself in the position of Mark Zuckerberg for a second. Who has the bigger community? Facebook has 3 billion users. DeFi has 20,000 developers. Crypto, all of crypto has 20,000 devs. What? If I was Zuck, I'd be like, why would I be a participant and plug into this? I'm 100 times bigger. I, it really surprised me when this whole announcement came out. Everyone was like, look at Zuck. Golf clap. Like, he gets it. Zuck is so much more of a threat because people actually love his product. And he's 10 times more capable. And he's more influential. He, he wants to change his image of being that, like, evil, centralized, you know, big tech CEO. He, he really wants to rebrand. I mean, he already rebranded Facebook into Meta. Because Facebook, the name Facebook had such a bad reputation. And uh, he really wants to change that image of being too centralized and too powerful. So we, we started out talking here. Uh, you guys have this, this big announcement, right? You guys are changing, pivoting from, I guess, what was it before? An accelerator venture type structure into a DAO. So I'd love to get your thoughts on why the pivot into a DAO as a structure. And then I want to talk a little bit about what uh, the reason underlying your change of focus, right? So if it was purely DeFi before, why do you think that there's more opportunity um, in some of these other areas like gaming, decentralized social media, et cetera. So maybe we could start with the DAO. Talk us through what was the decision to pivot into the new structure. I think there, there's you know, a few thematic reasons for us going DAO. Uh, number one is the composable uh, nature of where we're headed next um, is very important because ultimately you are what you are in terms of the services you provide based on the network that you have curated. And ultimately, what we've curated is the top builders of Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3 that have all come together to provide support for future Web 3 founders. Uh, number two is um, founders want to move fast, right? And so, you know, in, Y Combinator has provided incredible support structure over two decades because they've amassed this network of alumni that has kind of came together to provide support structures for our founders. And so similarly, with having a token, um, you're able to create a, a faster feedback loop that will ultimately incentivize the right behavior to support our founders in our program. 
number three is uh, DAOs uh, are very interesting because uh, the composability between other DAOs can bring uh, so much new services and support structures for the founders in our program. Uh, and that could be via DAO-to-DAO relationships or partnerships uh, and, and other things that we can talk about in a bit. And then four is um, over time, we believe that, you know, the community is going to be able to provide and take over a lot of our functions moving forward because uh, you are what you are based on the types of community members that you have in your platform. Fun fact, we, uh, when we first started Defiance, um, at least a year and a half ago, we actually wanted to do a DAO already, but we got so much pushback from the entire community. Uh, no, no one really thought DAOs were, were going to be a thing. Very few people thought it was going to be a thing. Uh, but now, a year and a half later, um, we get so much support from everybody. So it just goes to show how, how quickly this, uh, this space moves. But yeah, I, I want to talk about the, um, the idea of a digital startup nation. Um, so the original motivation, the, the thing that really triggered me to, th to think about all this stuff was the fact that people equate DAOs as LLCs, uh, which really pisses me off uh, because DAOs are... So much more than LLCs. Um, mm. DAOs can be a digital native LLC, but it's far more. And for me, the ultimate uh, addressable market, DAOs, is digital nations. So let me give you uh, um, the, uh, the four macro trends that I've been thinking about that um, basically gives rise to a perfect storm for DAOs to arise as digital nations. So number one is very simple. It's very easy to understand, which is the, the digitization of everything. Um, so like every aspect of life from work to social life is going online, et cetera, et cetera. But more importantly, uh, the digital world is actually making a big impact in terms of driving innovation into the physical world. So if you think about like my, my favorite industry outside of um, crypto is, is longevity biotech. But there's you know, energy, robotics, space, all these things, all these different fields have uh, undergone a renaissance thanks to computing advances. Like with more computing, you can do more things uh, efficiently. So that's the, the first uh, macro trend, uh, the digitization of everything. The second one, I'm going to get into a little bit of politics, which might offend some people, but um, it's, it's the decentralization of global powers. So... Um, uh, I read a ton of Rebellion recently, which you guys might have noticed. Uh, Dude, everyone has read that book. Everyone has got the bug, Rebellion. Uh, I don't know why people hate Rebellion. Like, Rebellion shares so much of his like own experience and, and studies of history. I, I find it so fascinating. And I, I really appreciate someone like, share, oh, oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So if, so if you really want like the big nerd book, this is Big Debt Crises. And he goes back and basically does case studies of like 50 big debt crises throughout history. It's I, I hate Redalio as a writer because he's so verbose. I, I can't like it, it's impossible to listen to his audiobook, but his studies are very impressive. I, I really appreciate someone doing that. But anyway, the, the point is um, the U.S. relative power uh, in the world probably peaked in the 1970s. Especially over the last couple of decades, the U.S. has been stepping down as the global, uh, as the world uh, police, right? Um, meanwhile, 
Europe uh, has been a lot less united than it was two decades ago when the European Union was first formed. Uh, and we saw that with uh, Brexit. Meanwhile, um, China is rising. However, China's, um, I guess, ideologies and values are fundamentally incompatible with the West. And therefore, China is incapable to take on the role of the world police either. So the world is actually getting more and more decentralized, if you notice, over the last few decades. And, though, and, and as such, no one is, is able to fill the void that the U.S. is slowly stepping down, right? The, the, the void of, being this, of having this uh, world police, right? So that's the second macro trend. The, the third one, which I've been tweeting about, is, is the fourth turning. Again, like it's so fascinating. The, the fourth turning is uh, this: the, the generation, generation, uh, generational theory is um, a theory written by Neil Howe, um, and basically it says that the U.S. and many other countries around the world follow this cycle, macro cycle of uh, about 100 years. Actually, he says like 80 to 90 years, but just for simplicity, uh, a, a century, where um, you have four, four turnings. But basically, that this this macro cycle, uh, you start with the rise, and then at some point, uh, you start falling. falling. Uh, right now, the U.S. is in the fourth turning. And the characteristics of the fourth turning is one where there is the highest ever divide between the left and the right, between the establishment and the commoners, between the boomers and the millennials, uh, between the rich and the poor. Uh, the country is extremely divided, and uh, we, we all, we've all noticed this uh, in recent years. Um, and so the problem with the fourth turning is um, people are born into physical nations. They cannot, even if they don't like what's happening in the society, there's no way to opt out. That, that's one of the problems with physical nations. And finally, the fourth megatrend is the rise of Web3. And so for the first time, we're able to do property rights via encryption, constitution and laws via smart contracts, taxation via token insurance, transparent policymaking via an open ledger, and international trade via DeFi. So if you think about the, the confluence of all these four megatrends, digitalization and everything, decentralized, decentralization of global powers, the fourth turning, and the rise of, of Web3, then naturally DAOs sit perfectly at the inter intersection of these four macro trends. So we think that DAOs will actually prove to be the first um, digital nations that are, you know, number one, primarily digital, number two, transnational, and number three, um, people can, can frictionlessly opt in, opt out. And number four, um, there are nation states that are enabled by, by blockchains, right? They, DAOs as nation states, they sit perfectly at the intersection of these four macro trends. Now, uh, DeFi Alliance, uh, which is now known as Alliance DAO, is going to build the first digital nations for builders by builders. Man, I complete, completely agree <laughs> with you, by the way, Chow. Chow, you got to jump into some of uh, our, our late night conversations here over a couple yeah. of drinks. <laughs> Jason and I all have these like late night calls, but like, dude, I just listened to this podcast. I, the, I I first heard Neil Howe like two years ago. I listened to a lot of macro podcasts, like Grant Williams, huge devotee uh, at the School of Grant, and he did this episode with Neil Howe. It's just I've listened to it like six times. Completely agree with you. I I, I love the that you're mixing that you're matching it with Ray Dalio because they're basically saying the same thing with different frameworks. Uh, 
it's, you know, one's a finance guy looking at short-term, long-term debt, productivity, whatever. Those are the three things. And then this guy looks at it from a sociological perspective of like this generation in relation to that generation. But they're saying the same thing. And I saw this tweet that you did where you're completely right. It's the the span of a human life. We just forget things, right? Uh, and then that's why history kind of repeats in the same way. Um, so walk me, I'm completely aligned with you on the macro perspective. Uh, and actually even zooming one level down, you know, we're talking about web two. I see DAOs actually as the logical extension of the gig economy in many ways, because I think one of the innovations of DAOs actually is that it's, it makes, if you view tokens as equity, uh, it makes equity issuance so easy that you can actually give equity to your users in addition to your employees, which is an extremely novel action that you can do. So I, I think, you know, the gig economy got it kind of right. They they did something of a product market fit where you're like, okay, there's a desire for people to have what you were talking about before, the digitization of the economy. Maybe they're working multiple jobs. Maybe they're they're zooming in. Look at how we're all talking right now, right? I don't even know where I don't even know where you guys are. Um, but I think the one piece that was missing and where they've gotten a lot of pushback is, you know, they're they're not getting compensated properly, right? And I think a way that you could fix that is by giving them some upside. There's no easy way to do that with equity right now. Like Uber gave like $200 worth of shares when it went public. Congratulations. But the the token fixes that fundamental um, misalignment for me. I totally get it from a macro perspective. Walk me through on some of the more micro stuff. Like tomorrow, what is the advantage of being a DAO? You talked about some of these things about like composability, right? Between other DAOs, like on a day-to-day basis, let's say one year from now, why is Alliance DAO going to be a better structure for you guys than the current setup that you have? And then in 10 years, it'll be the USA, China, and Alliance DAO all competing for uh, <laughs> for talent. But That'll probably take a century. We have a one-century view on the world. Uh, it's not going to happen uh, a decade from now. But to answer your question on the, on the micro side of things, so very specifically, let's say someone refers a really good startup to us, a really good founder, that ends up getting admitted to our accelerator and our, our digital nation. How do we compensate that person who uh, did the referral? Um, in Web2, the way you do in Web2 is uh, you, you give them cash compensation. It's very hard to give them equity compensation because of the legal friction that, that goes behind all this. So Web3, and uh, that was fundamentally remove this, this legal friction. So we can do these um, micro uh, incentivization is a lot easier, right? Like incentiv- incentivizing people to refer founders to us, uh, incentivize founders who are admitted into our program to be part of the startup nation so that they have incentives to help each other because everyone is, is, a, is a token holder and everyone ha- is, is an indirect owner of everyone else's uh, work, right? So specific examples like this, it's not even possible to do in the legal, traditional legal framework because of the friction behind all, all, all this stuff. Like, imagine Uber. Like, Uber 10 years, 10 years ago, even if they wanted to incentivize all their drivers with their own equity, it was not possible to do this. So much paperwork, impossible, right? So that, I think, for me, fundamentally, that's uh, one of the major uh, groundbreaking um, things about, about DAOs relative to, to equity. The uh, other is, if you think about DAOs uh, as organizations um, and these kind of inherent DAO-to-DAO relationships that, that you just mentioned, I believe over time that DAOs will become like composable, hierarchical organizations. 
And what does that mean? Well, it, what it could mean is that, you know, a DAO could be hyper-focused and you're starting to see more and more of these DAOs taking off. So there's a DAO that provides design support, UI, UX, and design support for founders. There's DAOs that provide ZK support specifically around zero knowledge proofs and how to build on it. And you're starting to see more of these DAOs that are kind of niche specific that offer a specific service in return for tokens. And so obviously our DAO, we're a DAO full for builders. We cannot provide support services for ZK or UI UX specifically, but what we can do is align incentives in a way where our platform could work with these smaller, like these other DAOs and align incentives in a way where we're both aligned in the long term from a mission and vision perspective, but then in fact allow their services to be provided on our platform for our, our builders. And so before, if you look at Web2, Web2 would probably build this function in-house as a, a business unit. And they'll ultimately try to, you know, uh, bundle all of these services together. If you know of uh, Andres, Mark Anderson's bundle and unbundling thesis, that's a lot of what's happening Web2 over time. We think in Web3, a lot of it is going to be unbundled. It's going to be primarily focused on, you know, specific DAOs that provide X amount of services. And we see DAOs just becoming kind of like nodes. And you'll see sub nodes that will connect with these larger DAOs that inherently bring in some sort of like platform, uh, will bring in some sort of service. And then inherently we'll see sub DAOs provide or receive some of the uh, services from there. So we see them as long term as kind of like network and nodes. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I know you guys have already been super generous with your time. I'd love to get a sense. Um, you know, uh, when we started this conversation out, Chow, you, you, you almost, I could feel the excitement that you had in terms of like, I'm so excited about what's going to happen in 22. It's not just DeFi, but it's like gaming and this decentralized social and like all this other stuff. And I could totally empathize with that because that's how I feel a lot of the time too. Give me like a view into your world a little bit. Like walk me through some of the big things that you'd be excited about, trends that you're seeing, like any, anything that you think, give, give us some alpha here. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll try to say some things that people don't usually say because I, I saw so many 2022 predictions. I, I got so bored. Board. Everyone's saying the same thing. Okay, so he, so here's one one uh, that it's not very high conviction, but uh, I think given where the macro, you know, the, the tightening of monetary policy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, I actually tend to think that the application layer has a lot more upside than the you know layer one stuff this year. Uh, it, again, it's, it's not very high conviction, and but the reason I say that is because. In a very abundant monetary uh, world, uh, people don't care about shit like PE revenue and, and stuff. People love game. People love putting money into things, into commodity-like assets, into assets that don't have a, really a, a revenue. And and basically, the layer ones uh, they remind me of commodities. Um, however, in a world where the monetary uh, environment is very tight. People will start thinking about uh, cash flow, and and especially given the fact that Layer Ones did so well last year, um, and and DeFi applications just they were they were completely dead against ETH, right? I, I think we might see. I, I think the risk reward is actually higher this year on, on the applications, but you have to pick very carefully because there's so many applications out there, and there's only five, like five to ten, like Layer Ones, so. Um, and it, it, the other argument for this is, uh, in 2021, uh, the world started paying attention to, to crypto 
but most people just don't have the capability to assess individual applications. And therefore, they pick the layer one protocols as a proxy bet on the entire um, crypto economy. But as people get more and more knowledgeable, they will have the ability to assess individual applications. So I think this year they will actually dabble into uh, the application layer more so than, than last year relative to, to layer ones. Anyway, this is, this is somewhat contrarian and somewhat not extremely high conviction. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to say things that, that people haven't said, said yet. Chow, if I don't uh, pull you and Imran off, Mike is going to be here for about six more hours. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to save you guys. I'm going to save you guys from that. But this is, this is awesome. Chow, thanks for, thanks for coming back for a second appearance on Empire. And Imran, really enjoyed having you on. You're, you're always welcome back. And guys, just, I mean, once again, really big congrats on Alliance DAO. It's, I think we will end up seeing a lot more folks who try to do things that you're doing and you guys are really leading the way. And it's not only, I think, will you guys build an amazing startup nation, but I think you will do the impact that this will have on the entire industry is, uh, it, it's tough to even anticipate what it'll be. So yeah, congrats again, guys. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Be well. Congrats, guys.